0: our Lord, our God, our Father. We praise you for the gift of your Son, that he came and lived among us, that he was perfect on my behalf, that he died, was crucified, was resurrected, and promises us that we have eternity with you because of his action. Father, I pray right now that you would just bless this gathering and uh, and that you've already blessed us with your life and your death and your resurrection. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for loving us even when we were your enemies. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I'd like to dismiss the kids to Kidstown Church. Head off with Miss Melissa in the back there. And for the adults in the room, if you would go ahead and uh, let's, let's have you go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Open your Bibles to Matthew 5. Give those kids a moment to head out the back there. That's not fair! You remember that phrase, right? A phrase uttered over and over again in the playgrounds of your youth and often uttered today as we look around the rest of the world. Certainly you have had that sentiment, you've experienced that at some stage of the game, right? The whole of our nation has an idea of rights, right? I mean we're we're obsessed with rights and everyone you've talked to knows when they've been wronged, but here's a rather important question. Where did you get the idea of right? Where did you get the concept of wrong? Where did that enter into your sphere of influence? Maybe I can ask it more poignantly this way If there is no God, is there any right or wrong? Is there any good or evil? What would good and evil be without a God? Would it be just a matter of personal opinion? Perhaps it would just be a remnant of evolutionary biology, right? They're just chemicals that are in our body, this remnant of survival of the fittest. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe good and evil come from the government or from some collective agreement. Maybe that's where good and evil come from. Our founding fathers, when they were putting together this country, uh, most of you might not realize that. If you were educated when I was, we learned about how awful they were as human beings. But most of them were really great and amazing people. I mean, really great and amazing people. Many of them had phenomenal understanding of architecture, of agriculture, of military matters. They were classically trained. They were, most of them spoke numerous languages. They were trained in theology and science and in trade and philosophy. They were very understanding individuals. These were individuals who t- told the field by day and often went home and studied and read from the original Greek their scriptures in the night. Profound individuals. So when it came to the Declaration of Independence, and it was necessary to offer a formulation of human rights do you know where they began with this phrase we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created they were wait they were created Mm, created they were created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights or unalienable rights but why invoke a creator Why should they invoke a creator? Because they were actually smarter than the vast majority of people in our civilization right now. And I mean this, they understood the subject of ethics well enough that they knew without an objective source of moral values, there is no right and wrong, no good and evil. That's why the creator is actually put into that text, that context. If you've ever looked around at culture, at our civilization and thought, how can so many people be so disagreeable and be disagreeing so much on what is true, what is right, what is good? If you've ever asked that question, ask yourself this, do any of them have an objective source of moral values? Are they making an appeal to what I think, what I feel, what I think, what I feel, what I think, what I feel? Or have they gone, there is a reality and it's bigger than every human being. Everyone say objective. Now, you'll remember from week one, as we got together and we began talking about truth, I said there are two versions of this. There is objective and there is subjective. Subjective is subject to individuals. It's dependent on individuals. I believe this is true for me, or this is my opinion, or my personal belief set. That is subjective. It's subject to time and circumstance and individual desire. But then there's this other condition, and it's called objective. Objective rises above the individual human. It's true no matter what, no matter what circumstances, no matter what government is in control, no matter what the chemical reactions in your body are telling you, true no matter what. That is objective. The question before us today is, is there objective morality? Is there an absolute right and wrong, good or evil? Let's begin with prayer. Our Father in God, as we dig into this topic Again, Master, I just want to pray that you would open our hearts and minds and give us, grant us understanding that goes beyond our natural capabilities. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak in and through and past me, um, that you would be in the ears and the hearing and understanding of everyone in this room. Again, that we would not just take in information, but Father, that you would shape your kingdom through what we talked about today. We love you, O God. Thank you so much for loving us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you didn't get one, there are outlines in the back, um, and does anybody want an outline that does not have one? Nobody does. No one wants an outline. If, if you would just kind of put your hand up in the back there, they'll kind of bring them around and maybe pass them out to you, I hope. Um, we are memorizing a new scripture passage again this month. Your mon- monthly memory verse, that was almost very hard to say, is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5 those are printed on the sheets that are in the back are the sheets gone (laughs) hallelujah somebody wanted them all they just grabbed them all none for second service speaking of second service really quickly uh jamie and melinda johnson joined the church this morning as did ferris brown so pretty cool right all right second corinthians chapter 10 verse 4 and 5 this is what we're going to be memorizing this month here we go you ready The weapons of our warfare are not physical weapons of flesh and blood. Our weapons are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying sophisticated arguments and every exalted and proud thing that sets itself up against the true knowledge of God. And we are taking captive every thought and purpose to the obedience of Christ. We will take captive our thoughts. You and I are engaged in a battle nonstop. We're engaged right now. You're battling with your mind and you are battling using your mind to try to advance the kingdom of God. So let's memorize that this month and let's remember what one of our great purposes is in this life. Do you believe in right and wrong? Good. That's good. Do you believe they represent absolute categories, that there is a real thing right and a real thing wrong, that they are objective realities? There was a famous debate years back between the Christian Frederick Copleston, a famous philosopher, and his, alter- his uh, antith- antithesis on the other side was Bertrand Russell, a very famous atheist, sort of the Richard Dawkins of his day, uh, full of hatred and venom for all things religious, and liked to expel that venom at every opportunity. The two of them got together for debate. Frederick Copleston, a brilliant Christian philosopher, Bertrand Russell, a brilliant Christian atheist. And as they began to debate, Copleston, the Christian, asked Russell this. He said, how do you distinguish between good and evil, between right and wrong? Bertrand Russell paused for a moment. He said, the same way I distinguish between yellow and blue. Copleston said, but you distinguish between yellow and blue by seeing, don't you? How then do you distinguish between right and wrong, between good and evil? And Bertrand Russell's response was this, by feeling, what else? By feeling, it's just how I feel. Ravi Zacharias was discussing this debate, and he said Koppelstin was too kind. He should have gone for the jugular here. He let him get away with it. But he should have said, Mr. Russell, some people seek to love their neighbors, and other people seek to eat their neighbors. Both on the foundation of feelings. Do you have a personal preference in the matter? Feelings. Imagine having feelings being the one thing you use to negotiate the minefield of good and evil in this life. Well, it would look a lot like what our civilization looks like right now, wouldn't it? Imagine saying to our culture at this moment, imagine going to the people in this culture and saying, you know what, whatever you feel is probably what's right. Just do whatever you feel. Can you imagine how much bloodshed that would result in? This is the culture we dwell in. Let's address the question, can humans be good without God? Can humans be good without God? Now some of you might be thinking, that is an insulting question, that's terrible. We can answer that right away. I know atheists, I know people who hate the very idea of God, who are virtuous people. They would help an old lady across the street. They don't punt cats, although maybe that's a virtue. (laughs) Sometimes it's, sorry, if you like cats... You're evil. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. All right, but you know, they tend to be good people. I've known people who reject the idea of God and they're good. So clearly we can just answer that question right away. Yes, people can be good without God. But the question is not, can people do good without God? The question is not, can people perceive the difference between good and evil without God? The question is, can people be good if there is no God? In other words, does the category good even make sense if there is no objective source of moral value, if there's not something greater than the human condition? Today we are going to discuss the axiological argument for the existence of God. Everyone say axiological. That's probably the first and last time most of you will ever say that in life. Uh, But we're going to be discussing this argument, and I hope you see the power of this argument as we go along. In today's session we're going to discuss a deductive syllogism remember a syllogism is just an argument it's a logical formation of an argument that is mathematical in its formulation Uh, so if you've gone to college you know you can get credit for taking a formal logic class because it is it's mathematics in a sense Um, this is a deductive syllogism which means if the premises are true the conclusion is guaranteed so here's the axiological argument for the existence of God hold on to your seats Premise number one, if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Premise number two, objective moral values do exist. Conclusion three, therefore, God does exist. Now let's start by understanding the terms good and evil first a little bit here, because some of of you might think, well, that's not a very powerful argument for the existence of God. I hope before all said and done, you would disagree with that statement. But let me say this, how do you know if I'm making progress? Our culture talks about making moral progress, right? We're going somewhere, and some people even define themselves as progressives. The idea is we're going to somewhere that is better. But let me ask you, if I were to progress to the soundboard right now, how could you tell whether I was making progress, whether I was getting somewhere? Have to know where I started, okay? You've got to have some sense of where I've started. We have to have some objective points of reference, right? If there was nothing in this room, you couldn't see a soundboard, you couldn't see any chairs or anything else, it'd be very difficult to tell whether I was making progress. It would be nice to have a unit of measure, right? You could get a tape measure and actually check whether or not Ben is getting closer to the soundboard. That is all an objective source of value. It's objective. It's real. It's right there. I can see it. When it comes to morality, if you have no real measurement, if you cannot tell where you've come from and where you're going to, how can you say that you are progressing, that you are making moral progress? In order for good and evil to be real, we need some objective source of value, something that can't be altered, something that's not subject to human whims or desires, something that's bigger than you and me, something that's bigger even than our culture And we're going to need to deal meaningfully with that thing. In other words, we've got to have this objective source. We've got to be able to analyze and understand it. But if there's no God, can morality be objective in any sense? Richard Taylor, a renowned philosopher and ethicist, discussed this issue. Himself, by no means a Christian. Here's what he said about ethics. And by the way, ethics, everyone say ethics. Comes from the Greek word ethos, which means way of life or way of living. It's, it's what we ought to do or how we ought to be. Richard Taylor says this about ethics. The modern age, more or less repudiating the idea of a di- divine lawgiver, in other words, rejecting God, has nevertheless tried to retain the idea of moral right and wrong, not noticing that in casting God aside, they have also abolished the conditions of meaningfulness for moral right and wrong as well. Thus, even educated persons sometimes declare that such things as war or abortion or the violation of certain human rights are morally wrong, and they imagine that they have said something true and significant. Educated people do not need to be told, however, that questions such as these have never been answered outside of religion. In other words, if you want to speak meaningfully about good and evil, you have to go beyond the human condition. Something transcendent has to speak To our circumstances. As a philosopher, he recognized this. Let's talk about the Christian view really quickly, and then I want to get to challenges to our version of ethics. The Christian view is this: we have an objective source of moral value. What or who would that be? God, Jesus, good answers, yes. God or Jesus. If you were here this past week for the truth project, uh, I promise we didn't line it up this way, but it just seems to be panning out so that a lot of the things they're talking about, we're talking about here. Del Tackett was talking about the Euthyphro Dilemma. Uh, if, any, if any of you have ever taken a Philosophy 101 course, you might have been exposed to this. It's one of those things they trot out to just nail freshmen. And so they talk about this discussion that Plato describes Socrates having. Socrates in this discussion, remember this is apart from judeo-christian theology altogether socrates is discussing ethics and he says this is a thing good because god wills it is something good because god wills it in other words can god just go hmm i wonder about the good and evil of law or of of truth what should i make it let's see i'll flip a coin Think. turns out deception is wrong and then he just gives it to everybody Let's talk about sexual ethics. Uh, Okay, it looks like monogamy within a relationship throughout the whole course of life is my intention. Did he just arbitrarily assign these things? That's one hand, right? Did God just arbitrarily assign values? Or on the other hand, are values bigger than God so that God himself is subject to them? Did God give us values arbitrarily or are values bigger than God? And for many Christians, they go into the secular environment like, I don't know this, I've never thought about this as a Christian. I feel stupid. And the professor's like, ha ha, we gotcha. It's not literally what they do. The answer to that question is, neither of these things is true. You do what's called splitting the horns of that argument. It is a false dilemma. So what is the correct position from the Christian standpoint? It's not that God arbitrarily assigns values. It's not that values are bigger than God and more important. God himself is the locus of our values. He is the source of moral right and wrong. Why is fidelity in marriage good? Because God is faithful. God is faithful. And when we show that we are faithful in our marriage, we are emulating him. Why is deception bad? Because our Lord is not about deception. He is about truth. That's why it is good to be true, to be honest. All of what we believe and hold to be right and wrong are found in the character of God, in his nature. Can I hear an amen? God is the source of objective moral values and commands. And as he is the source of moral objective values and commands, when he gives us a command, then we therefore have a moral duty. If you're a junior high boy, the word duty is pretty funny. I was mentioning in first service when I was studying philosophy in college, uh, we studied Immanuel Kant who uh, says that we have duties and we all must discharge our duties. And every time it was said, I would just, you know, it just couldn't help it. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Some of you are wishing you'd never had any insight in the way my mind works. Matthew 5, verse 43 through 48. Uh, Matthew 5 through 7 is considered one of the most important texts in world history by everyone, particularly when it comes to ethics. Even people who are outside of Jesus Christ, atheists, agnostics, skeptics of every stripe, tend to look at this passage and say this is one of the most brilliant discussions of ethics ever, which we should expect when God speaks to us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 48. Let's look at this passage really quickly. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pause. Why is loving your enemies good? Because that's who he is. It's good for us to love our enemies because that's how he treats with me. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you might be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So here's a quick snippet of how God thinks about ethics. If you're basing your goodness, your right or wrong, on what other people are doing, he says, that's worthless. Who cares whether or not you are good as good as other people who are around you? How should we then determine whether or not we're good? Look at this next verse. It's terrifying. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. be perfect anybody have a problem with that we are to be perfect as our head where are we to derive our morality from i don't care compare myself to the culture i compare myself to god almighty and here's what i realize i do not stack up but i've got good news for you if that's you too literally i've got gospel message for you good news john chapter 15 3 through 5 this is the christian ethic Jesus is speaking, John chapter 15, 3 through 5. He says this, You are already clean because the word I have given you. In other words, I've already made you perfect and pure and good. The teachings which I have discussed with you remain in me, and I will remain in you, Just, just as no branch can bear fruit by itself without remaining in the vine, neither can you bear fruit producing evidence of your faith unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I am him will bear much fruit. For otherwise, apart from me, that is cut off from vital union with me, you can do nothing. Here's the Christian ethic. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. God says as much. But we're expected to be perfect. And we can be. When we die to self and Christ indwells us and works in and through us, we are perfect. We bear fruit. That's the Christian ethic. That is right and wrong in the Christian sphere. Are you good? Not of yourself, but when Christ is in you, good things can come from you. But the atheists have an ethic as well. A non-believer has an ethic. Let's look at their version of morality. Let's look at alternative moral paradigms and problems with those paradigms. Let me ask you a question that might seem a little odd. What's wrong with eating babies? What's wrong with eating babies? I told you it would seem a little odd. It's gross. (laughs) I've derived my ethic. It is gross. Um, You might think that is an absurd question. I mentioned this morning, it just occurred to me this morning. It's like, I bet we're the only church in the country, maybe in the world, who's talking about eating babies this morning. I hope that's the case. You might think the answer is so obvious that you don't need to dignify it with a response, but I want you to imagine for just a moment that there is no God. There is no God. There is no objective source of moral values. And then I want you to imagine trying to make the argument that eating babies is wrong, all right? I want you to think, what would I say? What would I do to convince people that eating babies, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what is going on, is wrong? What's your strongest argument? Here's the inconvenient truth about most every human being on this planet. We all like to talk about what's right and wrong, good and evil. We just spatter it out there all the time, but almost nobody thinks about why something is wrong. Nobody goes to foundations, ethical foundations. Why is something good? Why is something evil? I want you to assume there's no God, and I want you to think for just a moment about what you are if there is no God. You are a sack of protoplasm. You are chemicals. You are an elaborate set of chemicals that is produced by an astonishing set of fumbles in a universe that should not even be here. And what, is, what are your thoughts? Your thoughts are, are an epiphenomenon of those chemicals in your body. It's like exhaust coming out of the back of a car. That's what your thoughts are. Why should you think that anything you believe or think is of moral value? You know what else you are? You're just another animal. Can I ask you, uh, what, what moral accountability does a hippopotamus have? You know, hippopotami, I think that's the plural of hippopotamus, hippopotami kill a lot of people in Africa, more than any other big game animal. Apparently, if you get between a hippopotamus and the river it wants to dwell in, it takes you as a threat and it murders you. How come we don't see more hippopotami being brought up on murder charges? What about a mouse? What ethical responsibility does a mouse have? A a mouse burned down my house. When I was in third grade, according to the, the fire inspector, it was mice chewing on wires that caused my house to burn down. How come we did not pull up those mice on charges of arson? Now, if that seems ridiculous to you, let me ask you why you think it would mean so much when other human beings do it with one another. We're just animals. All we are are animals sacks of chemicals ravi was zacharias was on a stage in japan and as a christian he's speaking on the problem of evil and a man stands up during the q uh, question and answer session at the end of his message and the man says i am a lover of friedrich nietzsche I, i believe that there is no objective meaning or value in the universe and your talk of good and evil means nothing to me there is no good there is no evil there is no right there is no wrong these are all human impressions they're created they are nothingness Rabbi Zacharias said, are you telling me that if I brought a two-year-old or three-year-old up here on stage and I put that child up in front of you and I took a machete and I started cutting from the toes of that child, as that child screamed and howled in pain, are you telling me that I have done nothing wrong? The whole crowd went silent. And the man said, well, I cannot say that I would like it. Um, I'd say that I wouldn't feel good about it, but I can't say that you've done anything wrong. The whole crowd kind of groaned at that moment. Ravi said to the man, While you find it while you reject the fact of evil, you still find it impossible to reject the feeling of evil. You better find out why that feeling is inside of you. Non-believers Will not limit themselves and say, hey, there is no moral right and wrong. Generally, most believers or non believers say, okay, well, there is some source of ethics. I mean, clearly, right and wrong are real and they come from something. And so, one of the positions is atheistic moral realism. Atheistic moral realism says, objective morality exists, there is a right and wrong, but God is not the cause, which should prompt a question in any thinking person What is the cause? If there is no God, then what would be the cause of good and evil? What would be objective about morality? How does it get bigger than you and me? How does it impose its will on you and I? How does it move from personal opinion to abstract reality? Do any of you remember the Columbine shooting? It was the first major shooting event that took place in our schools in this country that got like national media headlines. And, and if you'll recall in the news immediately following that shooting, there were people erupting and they were, they were having fits like, what's wrong with our kids? Like, how could people think this way and function this way? And, and, and what is happening here? And I remember I was working third shift at a retirement home during that time period. I had to teach Sunday school the next morning. And I remember being up all night and thinking, I've got to speak to this issue tomorrow morning. And so I came in and I stood before the high school ministry there. And I said, these kids are entirely rational. They were absolutely rational. They were behaving perfectly in their worldview. Do you know what their worldview was? They were atheists. There is no God. And and so these young men went, I want to kill myself. But before I do, I'm going to kill other people. I'm going to eradicate other people in my sphere of influence. And maybe you're thinking, Ben, you're a monster. How can you say that that is normal, that is right, and that is in keeping with their worldview? Let me ask you this. If you were a non-believer, you imagine talking to these boys the day before that happened, and without invoking God, can you try to imagine explaining to them why what they're about to do is wrong? How would you express that to someone like that? Uh, look, you want to kill yourself. It's, it's wrong to kill somebody else. Why? They've got a great argument, by the way. They can respond with this perfect argument that completely unmans the idea that they have any moral obligation. Here's how it goes. It's rather complex. Try to stick with me here. -uh. (laughs) Nuh-uh. Or here's a, a slightly longer one. So what? It's wrong to kill people. So what? Why should I care about that? Why should that be interesting to me? I'm going to be dead tomorrow. Why shouldn't I kill as many people as I want? There is no God. There is no ultimate right or wrong. There is nothing after this life but the long sleep of death. I will just be gone. Imagine trying to convey to such a person why what they're doing is wrong. We have evolved morality. People... We'll say okay well surely or maybe we can't just say something is objectively right or wrong by that but surely evolution shows us why something should be right or wrong i mean after all we've we've got these these chemicals in our body they must be telling us something right and so evolutionary morality or evolved morality says this it says all current modes were just habits of the species that offered some benefit to the species in terms of survival Over time, they moved from being a mode of operation, a modus operandi, to take on a sort of life of their own. So now you and I have these experiences, but they're just kind of genetically ingrained ideas from evolution. So for instance, your child is drowning in a lake. You look at it and go, I must preserve my species. And you jump in to save your child. Why do you do that? Because evolution informed that in your genetics, you have an evolutionary responsibility to preserve your genetics. That's why you do that. There's a problem with this whole idea. Well, there are a number of problems with this idea. Uh, Michael Ruse, philosopher of science, himself an atheist, said this. He said, the position of modern evolutionists is that all humans have an awareness of morality because such an awareness is of biological worth. It's worth it for our genetics. Morality is a biological adaptation no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something or another, ethics is illusory. Right and wrong are an illusion. He says, I appreciate that when someone says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they're referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such a reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction. Any deeper meaning is illusory. It's illusion. E.O. Wilson, who came up with the idea of evolved morality, he was a popular writer uh, back in the 70s. E.O. Wilson said, I, my theory seems to work, except I've got some problems, and here's one of the big problems. A word called altruism. Everyone say altruism. Altruism is when you do something good with no expectation of reward in response. So you're sitting on a bus, and an old woman gets on the bus, and she's barely able to keep herself up. If you're the individual who gets up out of a seat and says, ma'am, take my seat, please. The evolutionary ethicist would say to you, the only reason you did that is because for some reason, you think that that woman's going to give you a seat at some stage of the game. It's going to be reciprocal. But there are these certain engagements we experience where... An evolutionary biologist could not possibly explain what happened. For instance, you're walking along the street and you hear a woman yelling, fire, the building's on fire. And then she says, my daughter's in there. My two-year-old daughter is in this building. And you're walking past. And as you walk past, there's suddenly a rush of adrenaline in your body. You think, ah, I'm being told, fight or flight, telling me to do something. And you have this sense of nobility. Maybe I should do something. Maybe I should save that child and rush in and sacrifice myself. Evolution should preserve your genetics which means in that situation you should go Pfft, it's not my kid those are not my genetics and you should just keep walking but we all recognize that the person who stops and rushes in the building is doing something good they've acted on a standard that evolution would never select for that is a problem with this system not to mention a number of other problems for instance this let's imagine that evolved morality is correct there is no god everything you sense is right and wrong is just based on your genetics let me ask you this what is off limits to you what would be morally wrong for you to do you might think about the child drowning in a, in a pool of water and if there is no god there's a child drowning in water you go maybe i should save that kid or, you know, I recognize that what's happening is I'm just having this chemical release. This is just a chemical thing attached to my genetics. I could also get in the water and hold that kid under the water until the bubble stopped. And that would release another set of chemicals that would tell me that I'm guilty of doing something. But I know those are just chemicals. I haven't done anything really wrong. Hmm. William Lane Craig, Christian philosopher, says this. If atheism is true, it becomes impossible to condemn war oppression or crime as evil nor can one praise brotherhood equality or love as good it doesn't matter what you do for there is no right and wrong all things are permitted to be sure some actions say rape or incest might not be biologically or socially advantageous and so in the course of human development they came became taboo you know like something that's out of fashion But that does absolutely nothing to show that rape or incest are really wrong. On the atheistic view, there's nothing really wrong about raping someone. Such behavior goes on all the time in the animal kingdom. Why would it be rational to think that evolution is binding morality as opposed to just a useless relic that I could cast aside? You might think I'm being unfair with atheists here. Lawrence Krauss, one of the more famous atheists of our day, you've probably seen him if you've ever watched the discovery channel he's one of their go-to cosmologists he hates christians he loves to ridicule christians lawrence Krauss was debating a muslim and on the stage the muslim asked him said mr Krauss, what is wrong with incest and lawrence Krauss said it's not clear to me that incest is wrong so what do you mean and the whole crowd was like what you know Lawrence Krauss says, well, I mean, all we are is, you know, we're we're the genetic byproduct of evolution. The only reason you think that incest is wrong is because we're programmed in such a way as to try to prevent mutations in the species. So now that we're enlightened and we know that, there's nothing wrong with siblings with one another or with a parent and child or grandparent and grandchildren, nothing wrong with any of that. And the crowd was just like, what? Rather than back away from it, he doubled down on this in sequential debates, went ahead and projected this same mentality and said, look, you guys are all buffoons. There's nothing wrong with this so long as you're protecting against offspring. It is of note that uh, Lawrence Krauss was great friends with Jeffrey Epstein and has been implicated in the Me Too movement dramatically. He lost his position in his university. But let me tell you something, that is a rational atheist. That is completely reasonable by the atheistic standpoint. Well, maybe it doesn't come from evolved morality. Maybe we can't say that there are just these objective moral values that are out there. But I know where we can get moral values from our government. (laughs) Socially constructed morality. Maybe all morality is the result of agreement between all of us or agreement with ourselves and the government or just handed down to us from a government. All ethics are a product of cultural indoctrination. Well, we've got some problems with that. As such, if they are a product of our collective agreement, then let me ask you this. If Hitler had won World War II, and we were all speaking German right now, would there be anything wrong with anti-Semitism? Hating Jewish people just because they're Jewish? The answer is no. No if the christians never rose up in an abolitionist movement before the civil war and sought to throw off all slavery and slavery was still being practiced as it was in that time period today would there be anything wrong with slavery you might say well the slaves might think so but you know how people have operated through history and how really it wouldn't be unreasonable for atheists to respond is so what that's that's those people's problem we're in power And that's the way things have worked for a long time in many cultures. In Hitler's day and age, by the way, guys, Hitler was acting on the best scientific information of his day. All the prevalent universities contained the idea that there was a perfect species. That was normal in that time period, and that that should be sought out. Was it right? If you believe that all our values are handed to us by cultures, then you would have to say, yes, that was right. I believe it's objectively wrong. Do you? Without a God, you have a very difficult time getting there. I don't think you can get there. If only we had real versions of governments that believed that they could institute morality and whatever they said was absolutely correct and right. If only there were some versions of that we could look at in world history to determine how well that worked. Oh, wait, there is. Communism is the very definition of there is no God. And because there is no God, we tell you what is right or wrong. How has communism worked out for human beings? According to R.J. Rummel's book, The Death or Death by Government, Rummel estimated that communist regimes from 1900 to 1987, less than one century, murdered more than 110 million people. 110 million. After more information emerged about Mao Zedong's uh, starvation uh, engagements, where he intentionally starved his people, they upped that number to 148 million. Just to give you a sense of perspective, it's estimated that Hitler probably killed around 5.8 million Jews, that Hitler killed less than nine million Soviets. The communist Soviet government was better at killing its own citizens than Hitler was. Way better. When the government determines what's right, when the collective determines what's right, you can bet that the goalposts are going to move. So, Atheistic moral realism doesn't work. Evolved morality doesn't work. Social contract morality doesn't seem to work. And so what we're left with is what's called moral relativism, moral relativism. That is this, all morality is completely subjective. All of right and wrong is just based on you and what you think and what you desire. Have you ever been in a car? And yes, we've all been in cars. Have you ever been in a car and uh, you've been surrounded by large vehicles on both sides? And the vehicles are kind of pulling forward or like rocking backwards. And you're like, I don't know where I am in space, right? You're like, am I moving? I feel like I'm moving. Um, apparently, that's even worse if you're, if you're like an astronaut and you go into orbit um, because everything is moving. The earth is moving. The sun is moving. All the planets are moving. All the stars are moving. If you look out a window, everything's spinning. And then your one major source of understanding of where you are, gravity, is not there. And so it's everything is shifting. Everything is moving. This is moral relativism. Everything is shifting. Everything is moving. There are no fixed points. You cannot tell where you have gone or whether you're making moral progress. And that's where our culture is right now. In such a system, no one is wrong, not ever. If you get to make up right and wrong, guess what? You're always perfect. J.P. Moreland, a Christian philosopher, was discussing a psychologist interaction with one of his patients and the psychologist had a man that he was counseling and that man used to go to the pet store every week and he would buy a bag of mice and he would bring them home and he would sit over a trash can and he would just take the mice one at a time and he'd pop off their heads into the trash can. If all morality is individualistic and subjective, how would you tell such a man he's doing something wrong? There's no doubt that he got some kind of joy from it. He wasn't breaking any laws in his vicinity. How could you explain to such a man that what he was doing is a moral abomination? You'd have to have an objective source, and yet that's completely what we're denied. If there is no God, there is no objective moral source. If there is no God, prison should be locked from the inside. Right? Because the only thing a person can be guilty of is being guilty of guilt. And if you're guilty of guilt, you can go shut yourself in a prison till you feel like you've learned your lesson, and then you can leave. Or, or better yet, just skip the prison indictment altogether, and all you have to do is make yourself feel good about what you're doing, and then you're okay. If our morality comes from a government, if our morality is completely relative, if our morality is simply evolved, then all you have to do is avoid consequences, not get caught, and, and then pretty much sky's the limit for you, Right? Richard Taylor said this, he said, uh, contemporary writers in ethics who blithely discourse on, or discourse on moral right and wrong uh, and moral obligation are without, referen- without any reference to religion, are just weaving intellectual webs from thin air, which amounts to saying they discourse without meaning. If there is no God, there is no right and wrong. The good news is there is right and wrong. You all know objective morality. You know it as well as anybody else. Any atheist I drug into this room were we to torture a child would go, something wrong is happening. Because we all recognize good and evil, right and wrong, there are objective ethics. Praise the living God that such a thing exists, but you and I have a foundation for those. We know where ethics, where morality comes from. If you believe that good and evil are objective realities, God makes sense of that reality. If you want to live in a civilization where ethics are deemed objectively binding, you've got to invoke God. And I'm not just saying this from my perspective. Our founding fathers believed this as well. John Adams said this. He said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. In other words, you get rid of religious ideologies. You get rid of the idea that there is an objective source of values and this country will implode. God doesn't just give us an ethical foundation. God gives us ethical direction and discernment. When I experience guilt, I don't think, my goodness, my chemicals are off. If materialism is is true, then guilt is nothing but social or biological conditioning. It's just your culture and your genetics. It's nothing more. But if there is a God and if there is a human spirit, then something like guilt may reflect a very real state of metaphysical reality in me. If there is no God, consider something like love. If materialism is true, there is no God, then all love is ultimately self-love. When I say I love someone, I might think that I mean something, but on deeper inspection, if I really check myself out, I'll recognize I don't care about any other person. I care about how that person makes me feel. Romance kind of dies, doesn't it? But if there is a God, if the human spirit exists, then love can be objective, real. It can be selfless. It can be deeply meaningful. Our God is love. What about moral outrage? If materialism is true, what is moral outrage? You know, social media. What everybody's doing all the time. Do you know what moral outrage is if there is no God? It's just an absurd ability or inability to accept reality. It's a temper tantrum. That's all it would be. However, if there is a God, then the human spirit exists. And if that is the case, then moral outrage may reflect a real sense that something has gone objectively awry. In the cosmic sphere of things, there could be something wrong with me or something wrong with you or something wrong with our culture. But the only way to analyze that is to have an objective source. God gives us direction and discernment, and praise God Almighty, He gives us ethical judgment. I want you to think about how heinous it would be if there was no God. Think about how many people get away with it. You know what I mean? They do wrong their whole lives. They victimize their terrible human beings, but they never, never pay for what they've done. And think about how many people will never be vindicated. People who suffered and, and experienced injustice, but God never does anything for them because there is no God. They just die in the midst of their depravity and squalor. But if there is a God, and there is, Then all things will ultimately be resolved. In Hebrews chapter 9, we're told it is appointed for man but one time to die. And then the judgment. We will face judgment. We will be judged by God Almighty. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 and 10. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him that is God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Revelation 20, terrifying and delightful. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, for the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds." It is certain, as certain as the sun rises, that there is objective morality. There is objective morality. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Objective moral values do exist. Therefore, God exists. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, We praise you that there are objective morals and values, that ethics represent a real state of being, that we recognize it with the whole of our being. And Father, we can know the foundation on which that all rests. Lord, we praise you that not only do you form the foundation of objective moral values, Father, but that you give us insight and directives to understand what you have called us to. And Father, more than that, that you will ultimately judge all things, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess before all is said and done. We love you, God. Thanks for loving us. Amen.